kiddos coming forward. <laughs> and while they're coming forward, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. So, who's got who this morning? We've got everyone. You've got everyone. We've got uh, Sprouts and kids. Okay, and you are doing? We're learning about God makes a way. God makes, God makes a way for the Israelites out of the kingdom. God makes a way. All right. Well, we're going to pray for you guys as y'all go back there and um, hope y'all enjoy yourself and learn lots. Okay, so let's pray for them as they go. Father, thank you so much for these children and for the Kreitz as they are going to be um, just teaching them how you made a way for the Israelites. And so, Father, pray that they would learn much. Their minds would be opened to what they hear and their hearts would be open to understanding more and more about your great love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be continuing in our series, Nehemiah, uh, Rebuild and Restore. Uh, we are in chapter 2. A couple of weeks ago, we started in chapter 1. And just to give you an idea, I mean, here we see Nehemiah. If you look at that very first verse, we see it says, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and that time frame means that this is four months after chapter one started. All right, we look in the very first verse up there and we see the month and the 20th year. So basically, chapter one started in the winter time around November, December of 446 BC. Right now in chapter two, they're in the springtime. So it's four months have passed. And just, to get, just for those of you who were not here, in the first chapter there, we saw where Nehemiah, who he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem from his brother and some other acquaintances. He did not like it. It was just things are not good. And there's a reason that he was disappointed. That he was, the, the Babylonian captivity has been done for a while. Back in 539, the, the, the Persian king signed a decree and said, you guys can go back home if you like. And so at that time, Zerubbabel, he was one who led the first wave back, and they went back to start building the temple, and it took them 20, just over 20 years to build that temple. They had some opposition. They had some difficulties during that time frame, but it took them a while to build that temple. And from that time until not long from this letter, they just were struggling Israel was struggling. They were not getting right the, the festivals or the, the, the reading of the word, the, 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 the sacrifices, the worship. They just were not getting it. And so 13 years before Nehemiah was written, Ezra, he takes off in 458 BC. He takes off and goes to um, Jerusalem and he takes the second wave of Jews with him. And they go there to try to basically get all those spiritual things. They got the physical temple built. Ezra's going there to try to get the spiritual things taken care of. And so it's been 13 years until he gets word that things are still not going well there. And part of the reason is, is that this wall that's around Jerusalem has been destroyed. And there are people we're going to see on all, or all sides that are just against Israel, just against the people of God there to reestablish themselves and fortify themselves in that area. And so we see where Nehemiah, he gets this word that they're just not doing well. They're in distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And it says that 
He mourns, he cries, he prays, he does all. And there's three things I want us to see in his prayer. The first one is that he talks about how God is who God is. He exalts him. He says that he is a great God, an awesome God. He he says he's a covenant-keeping God. He's referring back to a covenant that God had with his people. But then he turns the prayer around. The second part of that prayer is, but God, we have not kept our end of the bargain. He said, the people we have sinned against you, my fathers have sinned against you, and he even makes it personal, I have sinned against you. Now, if you remember, Nehemiah was born in captivity. He was not around before the Babylonian captivity, all the people. He was not around during the, those, those 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. He wasn't, he wasn't there during that time. And so Nehemiah, he was born there in captivity. And so what was he confessing to God? Well, he knows that you know, the, the right relationship that we have with God, just like Kyle was talking about up here, man, we got to be humble. We cannot be approaching God. Hey, I got my act together, God. So whatever you need me to do, just give me a list of things to do and I'll make sure it happens. We, we, we can't go so proud and boldly before God that we're arrogant or anything. We have to humbly come before God. And so Nehemiah no doubt recognizes that the walls, the building, the temples, the practices, the people, the geography, the time frame, everything. We have sinned against you, God. My fathers have sinned against you, God. I have sinned against you, God. He makes it from big, broad to really personal. And then he just starts crying out for help. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to be, but he just says, we need help. And we come to the beginning of chapter 2 here, and it's been four months he's praying this. He's praying, crying out to God, and it says here, read with me, if you will, starting in verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan that the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And then the king said to me, what would you, what would you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And as I said to the king, if it please, and I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me from the, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams and for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because of the good hand of God, my God was on me. And then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, and when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Jerusalem. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would speak clearly through me to each one of us. 
what you would have us walk out of here with, what little nugget of truth you would have us to apply in our lives, what little word of encouragement that you would have us to embrace, and what, whatever word of even conviction, Father, that we would take seriously and deal with appropriately in our lives. Father, I pray that your spirit would move and teach and guide us and lead us in the way you would have us to go. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It says here that Nehemiah, he, he, was serving, he, he, he was the cupbearer to the king. We see that in the very last verse of chapter 1. He's the cupbearer. He's the guy that's basically testing the drinks before the king does. And so over time, he's got himself a pretty good job there. He's got him a pretty good position there. And, and it says that he's, at that time, he's, he's, he was, uh, that wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, there's a reason why that line is in there is because the kings, any of those kings in those days, when they went and conquered people and they brought people to, they didn't just grab anybody. Typically, they would get the well-educated. They would get the good-looking ones. They would get the ones from good prominent homes, the ones who could communicate well, who had good standing in the community. And they did that for several reasons. One is to show, look at all the people that are serving me, all these well-dressed and well-educated people that are serving me. But also, he would use them sometimes as counsel. Say, tell me about your culture. If we wanted to try to do this in, your, in, in this place, tell, tell me what do I need to understand about your culture that would help me better be able to accomplish what we want to do. So there was a wide variety of reasons he was he would do this. And if you were in that position, like I said, it was not a bad gig to have. It's not a bad job to have. It was a pretty good, I mean, if you're going to be a slave, if you're going to be, this is a pretty good position to have, to be able to kind of test whatever it is the king's going to be drinking. And so he was afraid that if he was not standing up there looking happy, looking confident, looking good, if he was not putting forth a positive image, the king would say, you know what? I don't need your grumpiness around here. I don't need you to come around here and bringing us all down, man. You're just dragging us down. So we're going to find somebody else who can stand up here, be a little bit more agreeable, be a little bit more uh, 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 pretty and cute and handsome and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and so he was afraid that he would lose his position. And he says here in this next, so the king said to me, why is your face so sad, though you are not sick? Something over those four months, he had kept it together. He had not had the long face. He said there that he had not presented himself in that negative sense. He had not done that. But all of this one day, or maybe it was gradually over a period of time, he didn't think he was being sad or anything. But the king noticed something, and he said, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? I know you're not sick. Why are you sad? It has to be something in your heart. It has to be a sadness of your heart. And he says, and then I was very much afraid. He was afraid that if he didn't have a good enough reason, if he, didn't, if he wasn't looking good, if he wasn't smart enough, if he wasn't dressed well, if he wasn't handsome enough, that he would lose his position there. And she's, But I said to the king, let the king live forever. That's something that all these guys, they would say, or whenever they came into the king's presence or addressed the king, may the king live forever. So let the king, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? He talks, he, he just, he starts laying it out for him. How, how would you feel, king, if you walked outside and looked over your kingdom and the walls were crumbling down and the buildings were on, but the gates were on fire and the people were in a terrible position? 
How would you feel? That, that, that's how I feel. I, how, how, why, why can't, why can't, why should my face not be sad? And the king said, what would you have, what would be your request? The king just says, okay, so the things are bad. What do you request? And what does he do? He didn't start pulling out his scroll and start going down a list of things. He stopped immediately and he started, he prayed to his God of heaven. I want you to think about that. He didn't just, I know for me, you can ask my wife this. I have what if scenarios for all sorts of things. I have a list in my head of if this happens, this is the plan. If this happens, this is the plan. I remember when we first got married, I came home one day. She was sitting, she was upset about something, and she thought she was pregnant. We thought, well, we're, you know, we weren't planning on having a baby at the time, and, we, and I wasn't making a whole lot of money at the church I was serving at the time. And so we were thinking, how are you know, she, she's going, how are we going to, this wasn't a part of the plan, and, and all this kind of stuff. I said, baby, that's all right. Don't worry about it. We got it covered. And she said, what do you mean we got it covered? I said, listen, before we got married, I talked to the elders. If something happens and she gets pregnant, can I get another job? Can I work a night shift or something like that? She said, you thought about and that's just something I did. I just, I, I've got what if scenarios for all sorts of things. Maybe not everything, but I've got what if scenarios for everything. So I can imagine if I've been praying for four months, if I've been thinking about a something for four months, I've got a game plan if the door opens up and I'm ready to walk through. This guy stops and starts saying, God, what do I do? He immediately stops everything and he just starts praying to God. And he says to the king in verse five, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers and tombs, that I may rebuild it. Send me so that I may rebuild it. I'm not sure at the beginning of this process, it, I, I, maybe he did have an openness to do this and all that. I imagine when he started praying, he was just going, man, what, what can we do to help this situation? What can we... Here's what I want you to see here. Number the first point I want to see here is we can trust God with those urgent requests that we have. We can trust God. He was praying to God, but he was talking to the king, and God orchestrated all this stuff out so that the king was agreeable to what he wanted to do. He said, will you just let me go and help take care of things? Now, now think about this. He's a cupbearer. He was born in captivity. He, his job was to test drinks and hand it to the king. That was his job. Now he's saying, I want to go and engineer and orchestrate and construct a whole city. Was he trained or educated or anything? We don't know that about him, but it seems like if he's in captivity and this is his job, it's, it's not like he was able to go to a school of engineering or a school of contracting or raised up in. They weren't going to waste it, let this guy who happened probably looked good, who probably was in, to a certain extent educated in culture and different things like that. They weren't going to let this guy get mangled fingers by going and being an apprentice with a, const a construction guy or anything like that. He was going to serve the king in this way. By being a cupbearer. He's willing to go and get his hands dirty. He's willing to go and work hard, strain physical labor to get something done. We can trust God with those urgent requests that we have, but part of this is that what are we willing to do? What are we willing to do to be a part of the answer to the prayers we're asking? What are we willing to be? What are we willing to step out and, and outside of our comfort zones and participate in when we're asking God for something? How much are we willing to be an answer to that prayer? Here, 
He says, If I have found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king. I want to listen. It pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. It pleased the king. First of all, I want us to see there that God orchestrated this thing out. You've got a king of a Persian empire who is sitting there talking to one of his slaves, a cupbearer, who is asking for time off to go and help build a city. And it pleased him to do that. Now, there... There are several reasons why this could happen, but I believe the main reason is that I have no doubt that this guy remembers how the Jewish people saved his father's life. If you don't know that story, just go read in Esther, the book of Esther, which is right after Nehemiah. You can go read that this week. And the first two or three chapters there, you'll read the story of where this guy's father was the king in Persia. He is... He has banished his wife, the Queen Vashti, because she would not do what he said for disobeying him. He just banished her. And then he's looking for a new queen, and he sees Esther. She's young, she's beautiful, and he wants her to be the queen. And she, ultimately, she becomes a queen. Her uncle, Mordecai, is sitting at a gate. The uncle who raised her because she didn't have a mom or dad. Mordecai is sitting at the gate, and he overhears someone say, they're going to go in and kill the king. He tells Esther, who in turn tells the king. The king investigates, finds out that it is true, gets rid of that problem, and he elevates Mordecai and Esther in his mind as far as trust. He, uh, that elevates in their, in their eyes. Over time, you read the whole book of Esther, you'll see the, there's another situation that comes up early on where Esther and Mordecai work together to help the, not just the, the, the Jewish nation. But I imagine that Artaxerxes, as he's sitting around the table with his dad, he hears that story multiple times of how these Jewish people saved my father's life. These Jewish people saved my father's life. And I have no doubt that that had something to do when he sat there and he said it pleased him to let him go and do this. And so here he's, he, he, he's, he's, he's talking about, he's talking about that. And let me, just, let me just say, where it says here the queen was sitting beside him, some people have read into that 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 is actually Esther. It might be. I'm not going to argue with them. I personally believe that it's actually his wife who is the queen at the time there. And I believe that this is the, the reason they're saying that the queen was sitting there is because it wasn't an official government function. It was a private affair around the family. I believe that's why that is in there. It, it, it wasn't like the, the queen typically was not sitting at a table in a public function, a government function or anything, but in a private setting uh, where they're having a meal or something, they would be sitting there. But here, he says that it pleased him. This is the same king that 13 years earlier sent Ezra back to Israel to help reestablish the temple worship and all the things that go with that. He is the one who sent him at that time. And so no doubt, Artaxerxes here has a fondness, a appreciation. He trusts the people there. Because think about this. Why would a king send anybody to the outskirts of his kingdom to fortify anything. Undoubtedly, there is trust, and undoubtedly, the hand of God is in the middle of this. Okay, it's important. The hand of God is all over this. So we can trust God with our urgent request. This next part actually shows us how we can trust God with our bold request. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 7. 
And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is, in, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. There's a, they're right there. It's pretty blunt. Pretty bl- right there, right out in the open, God was in orchestrating all of this. All right, God's in the middle of all this. But here he's asking. He not only says, can I go? But then he starts, can you give me some like letters on official letterhead, maybe, you know, from the king himself. Maybe you take your little signet ring and you put a little wax on that thing and you, you know, you give me a, give, give me whatever, give me some letters so that I'm not only able, able to travel because remember, it's like over 900 miles from where they are to where they're going. It's 900 plus miles that trip was, was going to take, not just a couple of weeks. It was going to take some time to get there. And as they go through there, they were going to be passing through the Persian Empire. But there were pockets of groups out there that were still a little hesitant to let people come and do anything in their area. And so they were just saying, let us pass through. We don't want any problems. Let us pass through. And not only that, he said, can you give us some letters maybe to give us some timber? He didn't say we'd be willing to pay for it or anything. He just, can you give me some letters and give me some timber so that we can rebuild this stuff? And he got the letters. I mean, this is a cupbearer standing before the king saying, can I get some official letterhead to be able to travel? And can you give me some supplies to build this wall? Give it to me. And he gets it because it pleased him because God's hand was in the middle of it. It reminds me of when Abraham was having a conversation with you know, when he knew that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he kind of said, well, God, wait a minute now. If, if, there's, if, there's, if there's 50 righteous in, this, in, this, in the city there, are you still going to do Okay, I won't destroy it if there's 50 righteous. And then he goes, well, I don't want to be pushy about this, but if, if there's 45, would you do it? And he, he, he does this for 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He keeps getting lower and lower and lower. That's pretty bold to kind of stand before God and say, what if, you know, was there 20, would you be what about 10 if we find 10 we know the story there boldness was something that just with God's people there was boldness in a lot of things they did we see there in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John were arrested and when they were released and said don't be going out there telling everybody else about Jesus they went to their companions if you remember they got up into the upper room there in the room there with their companions and they were telling them all that has happened And the verse there in verse 29, chapter 4, verse 29 says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And what does it say? Protect us. Keep us safe. No, it doesn't say anything like that. They weren't looking out for preservation. They were looking out for the advancement of God's word. They were saying, take notice of their threats and give us boldness. You see, it's okay to request boldness, to be bold before God. We even see that with Jesus was teaching and there were these four guys that was carrying a paralyzed man on a pallet and when they got to the place where he was, there was a whole lot of people inside the house hearing Jesus and all around the house, they couldn't get in there to him. And so what they decided to do, they, weren't, they didn't just give up. They got up on a man's house and they tore open his roof and lowered this man down. That's bold. 
We can trust God in our bold request, and we can trust God that he will guide us as we boldly follow him, as we boldly communicate his love for the people around. We can trust God that he's going to do in the circumstances whatever God wants to be happen. As we join him, we can trust in being bold for him. It's not only can they trust him with urgent request or with the bold request. Look at verse 9. You can trust him with, without a request at all. Then I came to the, then I came to the governor's of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters and now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. Not only, see he didn't ask for an entourage, he didn't ask for the cavalry to join him, but here, that's exactly what the king did. The king provided the cavalry for him so that he could not only have the letters, but he could have the means to back up those letters if anybody wanted to cause him any problems. And we're going to see over the next few weeks, we're going to see there are people there to cause them problems. We can already see in this, in this next verse here, we can already see where it says in Sanb. Yeah, when Sambalat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They were going, man, these people, they have been out of whack for decades over a century they've been they've been displaced their walls have been crumbled they've got nothing i'm sure that that you've got that one group that was to the north the horonites they were up to the north you've got the ammonites to the east the mediterranean to their back they basically landlocked these guys the jerusalem there and in, in, in israel they they had them surrounded and they could do whatever they wanted they weren't afraid of them they weren't concerned about what they might do they could care, but what they didn't want is for them to be reestablished. And so here you see where Nehemiah, he not only has letters from the king saying, I've got a right to pass through, letters from the king saying, give them the supplies they need, but he brought the cavalry with him to say, don't mess with the guy. He didn't ask for that, but it was given to him anyway. God will take care of what God wants to do with God's plans and God's ways, even when we don't know what to ask for many times. We just have to be willing to step out of our comfort zones every now and then and say, you know, God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you would have me to do? I don't know what that is for you. But God does not just, he does not want us to come on a Sunday morning, sit in these pews, hour, hour and a half, leave, and then next Sunday morning come back, sit in these pews for an hour, hour and a half. He does not want us to be secular on Sunday and sacred, or sacred on Sunday and secular the rest of the week. He wants us to be sacred throughout the week. He wants us to be instruments of uh, uh, his instruments to reach the people around him. And that doesn't mean going around there beating people upside the head with a big King James Bible and shoving the gospel down their throat or anything like that. That's not what that means. What that means is living a life worthy of his great love, walking in a way that honors him and him alone and everything that we think and say and do in all of those ways. And for some of us, that's going to be bold. Some of us, that's going to be a little scary, and you have to be bold, but you have to humbly submit yourself to him, and he will give us what we need to be able to walk in that way, to be able to honor him in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. He's, 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 he's not wanting us. He, he has something for each one of us, not just the guy up here preaching or the guy up here leading worship. 
All of us are involved in the work of God throughout the week. What does that look like? Spend some time like Nehemiah did. God, they're in trouble over there. They're having problems over there. And for four months, he spent time praying before there was actually an answer to his prayer. For four months. Sometimes it's longer than that. Sometimes it's much longer than that. We'll see that here in a minute as we go through the latter half of this, this particular chapter. Because we're not going to go verse by verse because the next few verses in verse 11 through 16, all that is is where Nehemiah is surveying. that He's there. He's surveying the wall. He goes around and talks about each of the places that he's going. We're not going to get into that so much. But look at verse 17. And then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Now, right here, there's probably a little bit of thinking along the lines of, we've tried doing this, Nehemiah, but these people out here are always breaking in, tearing things down, causing problems. We can never get this. We've been trying to do this from when Zerubbabel was here, when Ezra was here doing his stuff. We have tried to do this, but then he says this to him in verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. What they needed to hear and what they needed to see and experience is that the hand of God was in on this. The hand of God was in the midst of this. That is important for each one of us. The hand of God is not just going to, I don't, it's, 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 it's just not going to be, God's hand is not going to be placed favorably on anything just because we want it to be. Believe me, I have tried to do good things, whether it's in serving a church or around the world and stuff like that, and things just kind of fall flat. But where is it that God wants us to work? Why don't we quit asking God to bless what we want so much as to come alongside God and do what he wants to begin with? Too often, that's, that's what we tend to do. God, I want to see this happen. Why don't you, you know, help me do this or bless this? When God says, well, that's not necessarily the way I want that to happen. Look at the life of Joseph in Genesis. Here's, here's an example of in, in Genesis, in, in Genesis 39, verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. That's what the verse says there. Well, what happened up until that time? He had a dream that his brothers were going to bow down before him. He thought, okay, I'm going to tell my brothers about this. They get upset with him. They beat him up. They throw him in a hole. And they, anyway, a caravan comes by. They give him to, they sell him to slavery. They tell the dad he's been killed by an animal. This guy is in slavery in Egypt. He finds himself in a house of Potiphar and, and says that he's a successful man. He's in slavery, people. He's in slavery. And the scriptures say the hand of God was on him. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. And not only that, later on in the chapter, just 19, 19 verses later in verse 21, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The man is in jail now. In 19 verses, he goes from being serving Potiphar to being imprisoned by being falsely accused of something. He gets thrown in the jail and it says, the Lord is with him. 
We need to be looking more for how, the Lord, how we can fall in line and submit to him instead of having him fall in line and submit to us and our needs. We need to be more about trusting him in all these situations and lining ourselves up. When he, when he was praying urgently, when he was praying boldly, it wasn't to benefit him because believe me, can you imagine anyone? Any, now, there might be some of you in this room who could pull something off like this. I could not. Can you imagine, would I be willing to pack my bags and go to a place that's been totally destroyed by a hurricane and God says, I want you to go over here and help rebuild this city? I don't have the skills to do that, but am I willing to do it because that's what God wants me to do? I don't know that God would ever ask me to do that, but would I be willing to do it? I can honestly say, man, I don't know. That would be a hard thing to do. I wouldn't want to build something that I think is going to fall down because I can put a nail into something and that doesn't mean it's going to stay up. I can frame something out. I have, I have worked in doing stuff like that, but I need someone over me telling me what to do instead of me being the one over everybody else telling everybody else what to do. Am I willing to trust God with the request that I bring to God and step outside of my comfort zones and do what God wants me to do, which might not and more than likely is not what we would think would be best for us to do. We see in verse 19 and 20, these same guys, and you can add another one here, and Geshem the Arab heard it, and they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were doing are you rebelling against the king? And so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. He's saying, God's going to give us success. How was he so certain of that? Because that's what God wanted to be done. That's what God had communicated to him. I imagine as far back, not only in his four months of prayer, but especially at that time when the king said, what do you require? What do you want from me? And it says he stopped and prayed to God. I imagine right there the realization of, oh, wow. Seriously, God? That's what you want me to do? What about in our workplaces? What, are, what is going on in our workplaces or in our relationships What's going on that we need to be trusting God urgently for? We need to be trusting God boldly for. That we just need to be trusting God even when we don't even know what to pray. We just go, God, you know my situation. Speak to me. Help me understand what I need to do. What is it that you want me to do? What is that huge thing that I might be afraid of that I need to know or that I might not be prepared for that I need to know? What is it that you want me to do? We can trust God with that. Nehemiah stepped out, and we'll see as he goes on, there's, there's, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's going to be some troubles, and there's going to be some good things happen as, they go through the, as we go through Nehemiah. But here, I just want us to pause for a moment and just to consider, what is it that God is speaking to each one of us? What is it that one thing maybe, or this big event, or this big project, or this whether it's at work, or in the family, or whatever it might be, what is it that God would have us do? At Redeemer, what is it that God would have us do? And are we willing to step out and trust him 
to see that happen. I want you to bow your heads and just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to just stop and consider the words that I hope, I hope that as you've listened, that the Spirit of God has spoken to you and that you've listened to God more than you've listened to me. I pray that God would give us a sense of direction, of purpose, personally in our lives, collectively as a family of God here at Redeemer, individually as we go off to work, as we relate to people in our neighborhoods or just in our families. But Father, I, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would trust you. Speak to us, Father. Father, I pray that we would see see ourselves, our hearts, our minds the way you see us. That we would humbly bow ourselves before you. Submit totally to you. Surrender all our desires and place you above all those things. Lord, I pray you would help us to not just come to you with requests, but to spend time listening, reading your word and listening to you and your direction in our lives that we might continue to grow in a way that honors you and that we would speak your truth and that we would live out your truth in our lives. And whatever difficulties we find ourselves in, Father, whatever tough situations we find ourselves in, help us to know that in those situations we can trust you as we bring our request to you. You may not give it to us like we want it, but we are going to trust you. Through it all. Like Nehemiah, I pray we would spend time praying and listening. Help us, Lord, as we leave this place and enter our mission field beyond those doors. That we would honor you in everything that we think and say and do and love you in a way that is worthy of your great love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.